This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Politics program for November 30th, 2022. We're coming to the end of November, the beginning of the end of 22 in general. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you from what might be the last great weather day in 2022 in Central Texas. We got a lot to talk to you about, including Joe Biden making the I would have to say strange announcement that he is calling on Congress to end a potential rail strike. The unions and the railroads, which Joe Biden had seemingly mediated a deal between before the midterms. Well, that deal was rejected. They haven't been able to come up with one since. And now Joe Biden looking to Congress to use their authority to stop it. Not exactly a pro-union move. We have a a very interesting, if not humorous, Raphael Warnock ad coming up. And we're going to talk about the funding of the government. It is something that only really winds up getting a lot of news when there is the threat of a government shutdown. However, it is, to be quite honest, the bare necessity of a Congress even existing. They have to fund the government. Well, we got a deadline on that coming up in the month of December. So not only are we going to go through all the details there, we're going to talk to somebody who spends more time reading these bills than anyone else I know, the host of Congressional Dish, Jen Briney. We will also have a Ron DeSantis watch. Before we get going, though, a little piece of uh, sad news, very, very sad news. Virginia Congressman Donald McGeechan uh, is dead at the age of 61. That is only weeks after winning a fourth term representing all of Richmond, parts of Henrico and Chesterfield counties and the Tri-Cities areas. That is the fourth congressional district of Virginia. While McGeechan's death is something that was very sudden and at the age of 61, all too young, the causes were something that were known for a long time. He had been suffering from the after effects of a successful treatment of colorectal cancer. That journey began eight years ago. And if you look up pictures online, it was something that that led him to lose a significant uh, amount of weight. You know, pictures of him in the early 2000s. He's been long a member of Virginia politics compared to where he was recently is something that, um, you know, is, is a very stark difference. 
Quote, Tara Roundtree, the Democratic congressman's chief of staff, we are devastated at the passing of our boss and friend, Congressman Donald McGeechan, valiantly for years now. We've watched him fight and triumph over the secondary effects of his colorectal cancer in 2013. Tonight, he lost that battle and the people of Virginia's 4th Congressional District lost a hero who always fought for them and put them first. Obviously, first and foremost on this show, we want to send out all of our condolences to the friends and family of Representative McGeechan, and there will be obviously an an electoral ramification for the replacement in the House, which because this lead is so small for the Republicans in, you know, the, the, the macabre sense, literally every seat is something that matters. So one more time, uh, uh, respect to the fallen representative McGeechan. There's no great way to do a segue out of something like that. So I will simply leave you with, but first. President Joe Biden has asked Congress to intervene and block a railroad strike before next month's deadline in stalled contract talks. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said lawmakers would take up legislation this week to impose a deal that the unions agreed to in September. So let's go back in time. Before the midterms, inflation is still on the rise. Gas prices are an issue. And the big reason why Democrats, specifically the White House, say that this is happening is because of the supply chain. Well, here in the good old U.S. of A., you cannot talk about the supply chain unless you talk about the railways, the ways that things get from here to there. And right now we have a very internationally dependent supply chain. A lot of our manufacturing is done in China or other places overseas. It comes in on a boat and then it gets loaded on to railways. So when we saw those gigantic pileups of canisters that were coming into these ports. Part of the reason that was happening was because there was only so many cars that we can load up these canisters on and have them go from hither to yon. So if we go back to September, the Biden administration allegedly averted this strike. They moderated a deal between the unions and the railway companies. Well, that's what everybody thought. That deal still had to be taken back to the union membership. That union membership said that they did not like the deal. And so we find ourselves here again. Quote Joe Biden. Let me be clear. A rail shutdown would devastate our economy. Without freight rail, many U.S. industries would shut down. Echoing that is the outgoing Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. We are reluctant to bypass the standard ratification process for the tentative agreement, but we must act to prevent a catastrophic nationwide rail strike, which would grind our economy to a halt. Why is this notable? Well, because the Democrats are the party of unions. (laughs) The Democrats are the party of 
collective bargaining. Uh, 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 This is something that is way outside where Joe Biden wants to be. Number one, he needs the economy and the supply chain to be about as robust as it can. And a, a stoppage of railway usage in the middle of our Christmas buying season would certainly be a black mark on his presidency. However, he doesn't want to do it by going over the heads of the union leaders. So you have to imagine that they feel that they have expended all other options before they move into this phase. Because, and I want to quote something from you, a lot of this is developing as we uh, uh, as we are recording this. This is uh, Marco Rubio, not exactly known to be a a big union strong man, but this is him uh, being quoted right now. Just because Congress has the authority to impose a heavy handed solution does not mean we should. It's wrong for the Biden administration, which has failed to fight for workers to ask Congress to impose a deal that the workers themselves have rejected. I will not vote for any deal that does not have the support of the rail workers. This whole episode highlights many of the ongoing problems in our economy. Wall Street's drive for efficiency turns workers into line items on a spreadsheet. And you have union leadership so disconnected from its rank and file that they struck a deal that their members can't support. Instead of relying on Congress to carry their water, the party should go back to the negotiating table and strike a fair deal that workers can accept. So, why is there pressure to shut this down, even if it's an ugly solution? Well, hundreds of business groups have been urging Congress and the president to step into the deadlock contract talks and prevent this strikes. And both the unions and the railroads have also been lobbying Congress while contract talks continue. If Congress does act, it will, by law, end talks between the railroads and the four rail unions that rejected their deals Biden helped broker. Eight other unions have approved their five-year deals with the railroads are in the process of getting back pay for their workers for the 24% raises that are retroactive to 2020. Now, if Congress does what Biden suggests and imposes terms similar to what were agreed on in September, this would end the union's push to add paid sick time. That's something that Bernie Sanders says he will not vote to endorse an end of this impasse unless paid sick time is added in. The four unions that rejected their deals have been pressing for the railroads to add that benefit to help address workers' quality of life concerns. So far, the railroads have refused to consider it. Now, you never know with these situations. And my gut feeling in any kind of big high stakes negotiation is that nobody's going to agree to anything unless you have expended all of your leverage. So right now, what we are seeing is the unions using their leverage saying, you the owners of these railroads are not going to have this on your hands. You're not going to have a strike like this on your hands. The owners of the railways are saying, hey, look, we've got the entire economy and all of their lobbyists to pull this lever that ends these negotiations from the congressional level. 
And now Joe Biden is saying, I'm willing to do this unless we get to an agreement. My gut feeling is that the worst will not happen here. But Biden saying that he would push Congress to end this is something that I think is notable, or at least from the labor side. There's got to be something that you file away and remember. Guys, this is a complete coincidence, (laughs) but I will be in Georgia this weekend, the final weekend before the big runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. I did not mean to have this be campaign coverage. Uh, Usually after the elections, I try to build in a little bit of, of 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 rest and relaxation time so I can recharge my batteries a little bit. This is also the shortest of those periods because obviously the midterms really only signal the beginning of the 2024 race. But a few months ago, I texted my little brother who, you know, if you're of a certain age, you know, you get into your 30s and Life starts to get in the way. You have big careers. You have kids. You got a lot of stuff, right? And so organic moments, especially for me when I live apart from my family geographically, are hard to come by to be with family. So me and my brother decided that we would start a new tradition. We talk a lot about the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's our favorite football team. And we decided we were going gonna to go to one city and go see a game each year. That would be a thing that we would do. And it would be an excuse that would be family approved for us to go hang out. And then, you know, eventually, because he's got two little kids, maybe it becomes a family trip from there. You know, kids can also come along. But it's, it's got to start somewhere. And we decided on this year's Pittsburgh Steelers schedule that we would go see the Steelers play the Atlanta Falcons on this Sunday. What I didn't know is that there would be another runoff. What I didn't know is that Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock would still be out on the campaign, the campaign trail. So if something is massive, I will go and cover it. Otherwise, I'm going to try and respect a little bit of the work-life balance and, and just, you know, keep my hotel television on and count all the commercials like I normally do. That being said, I want to bring one of those commercials here to you right now. This is Raphael Warnock, and, well, you'll hear it. It's basically just clips of Herschel Walker while people are reacting to it, YouTube style. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. You ever watch a stupid movie late at night hoping it's going to get better, don't get better, but you keep watching it anyway? Okay, I've seen this video. The other night I was watching this movie. I was watching this movie called Fright Night, Freak Night, or some kind of night, but it was about vampires. I don't know if <laughs> vampires are cool people. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> is he serious? Is he for real? A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I didn't want to be a vampire anymore. I want to be a werewolf. Yeah, y'all serious about this, right? So I've been telling this little story. About this bull out in the field with six cows. And three of them are pregnant. There's no substance. There's nothing. So you know you got something going on. It makes me want to laugh. 
And then it makes me think we're in trouble. I was good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. No one's watching this and being like, oh, man, that guy's got it together. It is embarrassing. Let's call it what it is. It is embarrassing. Oh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I still think that Warnock is going to win. Uh, I, I think that air has kind of come out of the Walker balloon. But then again, Walker has a better machine behind him for this runoff with Brian Kemp's people there than he had before. Early vote turnout so far is very, very big for the Democrats. No idea on whether or not that is a good or a bad sign. Oftentimes, uh, early voting data means that you're going to get a particularly weak election day. But we don't know. So we will keep an eye on it. What we do want to remind you is the only way that you get bonus episodes of this program, including one from Georgia. I will be in Atlanta. That'll be this Sunday. Well, the only way that you can get that in your life is by heading over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, you get a bonus episode on Monday morning. You get a bonus episode on Thursday. That is double the episodes that you would get otherwise for free on our free podcasting schedule. Head over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The Biden administration has quietly begun preparing for Congress to pass a one-year stopgap funding bill. Now, what does that mean? Well, every year, Congress has to fund the government. Okay, that means that they have to determine exactly how much each government agency is going to get. That means that each government agency is asking urgently for more money than they got before. Government agencies do not, under any circumstances, ask for less money than they got before. They want to show that they are doing good things. They want to show that they are deserving of more money. If they get less, that's something they'll complain about. But this is very interesting. The idea of a one-year stopgap bill. This is all being reported by Punchbowl, D.C., because a one-year stopgap bill essentially funds the government for a year, but does so at the levels that were previously negotiated. This means that every organization winds up getting less money, or every department winds up getting less money because they were asking for more. Why is the White House considering this? Well, government funding runs out on December 16th. And while the deadline to fund could be pushed back till December 23rd, at some point, Democrats are going to want to pass a funding bill that keeps the federal government open until the end of September 2023. Now, an omnibus would allow Democrats to put their imprint on another big federal spending bill. And by the way, maybe the last for the two years that the Republicans are going to take over the House. The omnibus would also include earmarks, which Democrats brought back under their watch and might be eliminated again when the Republicans take over the House, whether or not Kevin McCarthy is the speaker. Meanwhile, GOP and Democratic appropriators haven't even agreed to a top-line number for a fiscal year 2023 bill 
That would be the first step in actually doing their jobs. Appropriators would still have to draft and pass 12 appropriation bills with an omnibus package that would most likely vehicle for doing so all resolving dozens of policy disputes, which would almost assuredly, at minimum, take three to four weeks, a.k.a. they'd have to get started right effing now. And at this point, as I record this, it doesn't seem like they are doing it. Worth noting, Joe Biden on Tuesday did have a big sit down with the power players in Congress from both sides of the aisle. Pictures taken by Reuters show Kevin McCarthy, cocaine Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer sitting with Joe Biden. No intermediaries. They are just trying to hash it out themselves. Not only this situation, but also that rail situation that we talked about in our first segment. So meanwhile, while all this is getting hashed out, And the White House knows that there is a ticking clock on this. Their Office of Management and Budget have, quote, begun preparing technical assistance for Congress that would minimize severe disruptions to government services in the event of a full year continuing resolution. This is called preparing, quote unquote, anomalies, a list of changes that need to be enacted in order to keep federal agencies operating if current spending levels are extended. Here is what a source close to OMB told Punchbowl. While it's standard practice to prepare anomalies as part of a prudent planning for a short-term continuing resolution, the lack of clear progress towards a deal has forced the administration to take seriously the possibility of a full-year continuing resolution, and therefore OMB is preparing for that eventuality, even as the administration continues to urge Congress to reach a deal to fund the government and prevent the damaging consequences of a continuing resolution, end quote. By the way, the department that would be the most PO'd about something like this, the Department of Defense, they are already raising a stink in the Pentagon, saying that there needs to be updated funding Through 2023, they cannot continue to survive if they are at 2022 levels. So how abnormal is this? What is eventually going to happen? And what would be the difference between a continuing resolution bill and a freshly negotiated budget? To answer that, we bring in One of our besties here on this program, she hosts the Congressional Dish podcast, the only program, in my opinion, that actually takes the time and care to read the bills that govern our land. She is also one third of the We're Not Wrong podcast with myself and Andrew Heaton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's welcome back to the program, Jen Briney. Welcome back, Jen. Thank you for having me back. Describe to the audience and me what the Congress has to do every year to fund the government. What are they required to do to <laughs> to to keep this old jalopy of a country running? Okay, so the way it's supposed to work is that all budget issues are supposed to start in the House. There are 12 appropriations committees that fund different parts of the government. So like there's one for defense, there's one for the Department of Homeland Security. There's 12 of them. 
The committees are supposed to create a funding bill for each of the 12 sections of government. Then what comes out of that committee is supposed to go to the House floor, get a vote, then go over to the Senate. The Senate can either vote on it as it is, and then it goes to the president's desk, or the Senate can make changes. They usually do. If the Senate makes changes, then they have conference committees where the two, where the House and the Senate come together, work on the bill. But then at the end of this process, they have a year to do it. At the end of the process, there should be 12 separate bills that either came from the House or out of committee. But those are supposed to all be done and signed by September 30th of every yeah. year. This year, we accomplished zero. Uh, indeed, the, the so. can has been kicked down the road until <laughs> December 16th, although now there's reporting that it could go to the 23rd based on on some of the rules. Uh, and And as of now... We have started doing none of those 12 committees, correct? Well, so the the committees did do their work. Like the committees worked on these funding bills for a long time. The problem is that they didn't go through the House, the Senate, the conference. Like, so there's actually, you can go on the Appropriations Committee website and see how far each of the bills mm -hmm. went. But what's going to happen now, because it is so late that they don't even think that they can get their December 16th deadline done. What's going to happen is that we're going to get one massive bill. They call it an omnibus that's going to have all 12 crammed into this one bill. And so what happens is you do get these bills that come out of committee. But when you jam stuff into a monster package like this, this thing is going to be thousands of pages long. These bills that were carefully crafted on their own get added to. So they get amended kind of in the shadows behind closed doors because that whole process of the Senate carefully looking at it and then going to conference like that's all skipped. Mm -hmm. And this always I mean, this is a pattern where they don't get it done by September 30th. They kick it to mid-December. The actual deadlines usually within hours of Christmas. And so like, you know, these people want to get home for the holiday. And so they're incentivized to just vote on it and get home. And that way the government doesn't shut down right before Christmas I think this is a, a strategy now because I've seen it so many times. But if you were to go and look at the individual funding bills law or funding bills now, there's no guarantee they're going to look anything like that when they get into the final package. So that's why governing this way is just everybody. And I'm talking about everybody in Congress. They all say that it's a shameful way to govern. And yet they do it year after year. Why is that? <sighs> well, I mean, I think at this point, it's been normalized. Yeah. You know, I saw it first with the Republicans and then the Democrats do it. So it's just accepted practice, especially by the leadership of these two parties. So I think just that alone, like uh, the American people are so unaware of the government funding process and therefore they don't know how broken it is. They don't get complaints about it. And so why fix a thing that the American people aren't aware of? So I think the normalization is a big part of it. But I also think that there are things that they cannot get into law on their own that wouldn't pass in a standalone bill that they can jam into these yeah. giant packages. And so it is a strategy that both parties have used to get things into law, usually corporate favors in my experience, but things that are good for their donors that are not good for the American people. They can slip into law because again, this is happening within hours of Christmas. By the time journalists come back to work in January, they've already forgotten that any of this happened. These bills very rarely get the scrutiny that they deserve. And so, you know, there's there's political advantages to burying things like that. And um, and so I think that's why it happens year after year. It's 
you know, I, I think it's, it's yeah, one of those things thing I that see we talk year. about on the show all the time that there's nothing in Congress that actually has bipartisan support that could pass easily that does, because anything that could pass easily is worth stapling other things that are less popular or more controversial or wouldn't pass by themselves too. And that's why that's why things that have bipartisan support. Let, let's use for an example, like the, the child tax credit, which has gotten support from both sides of the aisle, probably could rustle up 60 votes if they just tried to push that. But no, everybody mm-hmm. wants to staple other stuff to it or, or build it into a larger program because that's going to be the thing that they know they can sell it on so everything else can go through. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that um, child tax credit up because that is something that is being at least they're saying that they support it in both the Republican and Democratic parties. And what's happening right now is every year they extend corporate tax credits as a part of this omnibus package. And so what the progressives are trying to do is they're trying to say, we are not going to allow these corporate tax extenders to end up in this monster package unless the child tax credit is in there. So that's what's happening behind the scenes is that, you know, they're they're fighting over they call them writers. I call them dingleberries, but they're having these fights about what's going to go on to the package instead of, you know, trying to get the 12 done separately. They've just completely abandoned that. Whole what is a continuing resolution when it, when it, uh, as it results to stuff like this? That's the can kicker. Gotcha. So what happens is they take their deadline and they move it. So on September 30th, that was the deadline to fund the government. And the so-called continuing resolution is what moved the deadline to December 16th. So it essentially keeps the funding at the level that it was in the last funding law. So essentially the 2021 numbers just get extended until December 16th. The consequence of operating under a continuing resolution though, is that no new projects can be started during that time. So for instance, we just had this giant infrastructure bill. Um, A lot of that's going to get funded, but they can't actually start the projects. The defense department goes crazy over this stuff every single year because they can't start anything new while we're under a continuing resolution. And when you finish zero out of 12, that means that the entire government is operating in this way where they're just kind of on autopilot until Congress gets their work. So this is something that broke before, after we scheduled this interview, but uh, uh, before we have talked. So I don't know if you are aware of it, but this is being reported by Punchbowl News that the uh, Office of uh, Management and Budget in the White House is now preparing a year-long continuing resolution as a fail-safe for Congress not being able to get their act together because they are so far behind on doing what they would need to do, even for an omnibus. Obviously, this is because the Republicans are taking the House and and they 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 want to be able to lock in whatever they can before things get a little more uh, dicey in, in January. But just that idea, a year long continuing resolution. Have you seen anything like that? Is that as abnormal as it is being uh, 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 or as that I, I think it is? I've seen it threatened many yeah. times. Um, about 10 years ago when I started my show, it was just an unconscionable suggestion. But year after year, it seems to be something that is talked about more seriously, but we've never seen it before for precisely the reason I just said that you can't start any new projects under a continuing resolution. So the military in particular really hates it because I mean, just think about it. What if we get into a new war? What if there's actually an attack? Like they can't start anything new 
there's a lot of problems that come with handcuffing our military like that. So um, because the military is so against this and because I've seen the military brass testify so many times about how much they hate the continuing resolution, my crystal ball says there's no way they're going to do that because because of the military. Um, what and, I and, and by the way, be... Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and uh, they are already out in full force, even within the same articles uh, about this continuing the idea of a year long continuing resolution. Yeah, they the agencies absolutely hate it for good reason. So we'll see how much pressure they can put on that. But yeah, the Democrats failing in that deadline and then losing the House, they can't just do what they've done in previous years. Like last year, they were able to just kick it into January or February or March or like whatever. If they do that, then the Republicans get the ability to actually have a say in the government funding process. So I actually think they'll get something done at the last minute um, because I've I've heard this continuing resolution threat too many times and it's never actually come into to practice. So I'm not really taking that seriously just yet. As a seasoned congressional uh, watcher, what would the audience be on the lookout for if there is movement on this? Uh, uh, President Biden sat down with Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and the outgoing uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, today uh, that, that would seem to show some level of urgency from from the White House and both parties, but is there anything specific or or uh, uh, you know within the 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 gears of government that people should uh, peel their eyes for? Well, I mean, right now this is one of the lame ducks that I'm actually not that scared of. I always call this the most dangerous part of the mm-hmm. Congress because of you know this this Dingleberry factor where they're going to attach all kinds of stuff to bills because the Democrats have really all the power here. I don't really think that's necessary. You're going to see a lot of democratic infighting, but the thing that I think people also need to be aware of, because when they fail to fund the government, the the consequence is a government shutdown lost in all of this is we also still haven't authorized our wars. There's another part of their job that they never really fail to do. I think it's been like 65 straight years that they finished the national defense authorization act, which is the authorization of our wars that still hasn't been completed either. And so there's a lot of opportunities to attach things. And just because it's a war authorization, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Dingleberries will be war related. Like there was a whole money laundering thing that got attached a couple of years ago. So I think people should be watching out for both bills. Like if all the spotlight is on one, I would pay really close attention to the details of the other. Let's let's astray a little bit. Something that we talked a lot about on our other podcast, We're Not Wrong, was uh, the other story that we covered on this episode, which is the negotiation between the uh, rail companies and rail unions. We we first covered this back in September when there was a threatened strike. The White House negotiated a deal, a deal that uh, four of the union's memberships did not ratify, meaning that there is still a strike looming. Biden yesterday, uh, as we are recording this Monday, if you are looking at the calendar, uh, did what, uh, uh, you know, I know he, he probably didn't want to do, which is to say uh, authorize Congress to shut down the strike as they have the power to. Uh, you've seen situations like this in the past from from the congressional perspective. Bring us inside what what those decisions are 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 like and and what what are what are the conversations that are happening now from the congressional side? 
Well, to be honest with you, I've actually never seen the Democratic Party take the lead in shutting down a strike, the power. Yeah, the power of labor to, you know, withhold their own labor to get better terms. And like when it comes to the actual details of this contract, what I understand is the unions were asking for 15 paid sick leave days and they got zero. Yeah. They got one personal day and then they were able to take sick leave, but have it be unpaid. And I can see why the workers would find that unacceptable. And so instead of the so-called pro-labor party standing with those workers and saying like, oh, you know, railroads, how about you meet in the middle instead of the nowhere that you met them at? Instead, the the solution that seems to be on its way, I mean, we'll see, there's already some pushback happening in the Democratic Party, but the solution seems to be to prevent the workers from exercising their rights to withhold their labor. Um, I've actually never seen this happen. I've I've heard, you know, the Republican Party, which is tends to be pro-boss, pro-business. Um, I've heard them kick around this idea, but for the Democrats to do it, I think that would be extraordinary and just another example of this party not really being as pro-labor as they used to have the reputation for. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you, you kind of have to pinch yourself. You're in this topsy turvy world when I'm on Twitter reading quotes about, uh, uh, you know, Marco Rubio being <laughs> union strong and saying that he's not going to shut down the will of the workers. Uh, uh, but one point that he yeah. made that I was curious your opinion on is that this is a divide between not only the worker and the boss, but also the worker and the union representative. And and the idea that I think conservatives, as they have become more of the dive bar and less of the country club party at, you know, at least aesthetically is to say, well, no, it's also your union boss that you hate, not just your boss boss. Yeah, because the union boss, those are the people that sat down with Joe Biden and made the deal and made this deal. Yeah. And were they actually said like, oh, yeah, we got zero out of 15 paid days. Like, that's OK. And so you can see why the actual rank and file workers would be pissed about that. And their only course of action left is to strike. So to take that power away from them, um, I think it's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just very much against it. Um but I, I mean, I, the power of the union bosses is one of the reasons why unions went out of style when you and I were kids is because they got so corrupt and so greedy that the unions themselves got blamed for that. And even workers were kind of like, OK, we're done with the union movement. Now there's people that are appreciating that workers need to band together in order to have power in the marketplace, especially if you're dealing with these larger and larger companies that employ, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But I think there needs to be something in the union structure where, where the leadership can be trusted to not just be, you know, negotiating with their fellow, you know, I think the union bosses a lot of times are people that are in the same investor class as the people they're negotiating with at the top of like, let's say the railroads. So I don't really know what you do about that. I'm as independent a worker as they come. Yeah. Um, but it is fascinating to watch how the union leaders leaders are saying we had a great deal and the war workers are disagreeing with that. Um, but I think the point that we need to focus on is that seems to be something between the railroads, the union leaders and the workers, not Congress. Um, Congress is getting involved here because they want Christmas shopping 
um, to well, happen. Because I mean, they have a and, lever of power, right? Like, like Congress has the yeah. ability in in certain industries that are deemed vital to the national interest to break a strike, right? Like that that that's what it's that that is what is at play here. It's not like Congress is just an influential body that the unions will will be inspired by. That there is a legal ramification. No, of course not. But I think that's the thing of just because Congress has the power, that doesn't mean they should use it. Um, Congress oh, sure. has the yeah. power right now to declare war on Poland. Like yeah. <laughs> they don't have to use it. So it's the fact that it is the pro, the so-called pro labor party that is doing this. I think it just goes to show why so many workers in this country are so frustrated when they look at Congress because they really are politically homeless. Like if the Democrats do this, the solution is not to go to the Republicans who tend to be more pro, you know, your boss. Um, it just shows that labor has lost so much power in Congress that this is even being considered by the Democratic Party. Well, also, if I were a union, a rail union member, I'd be really annoyed because the union heads gave up the leverage that they had before the midterms. If you wanted to hold the Democratic Party yeah. to the fire, then you say, no, 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 we're going to strike right before the midterms. And if you don't want us to do it, then you have to eat this crap sandwich uh, uh, and, and, and piss off your union base. Like that, that would be, that was the leverage. They gave away that leverage for a deal that I guess, I mean, and, and we will be fair for, for many of the union rank and file, they did like that deal. Uh, it's four of them that said that they did not. So, but for those four, they, they said, absolutely not. That, that was, that was a fumbling of the bag as the kids might say. Yeah, I agree. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Although they do still have leverage over the, the, busy holiday shopping period. Well, so the I leverage mean, isn't completely it, gone. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why this is happening now. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, it, it's, it's happening now. There's never a good time, especially in our, in a recovering economy uh, uh, to have our infrastructure shut down. It does not help for the Biden administration to, as pointed out, uh, especially when the conversation has come around to inflationary pressure, that this is not inflationary, that this is all about the, inf the this is all about our infrastructure. This is all about our supply chain to have the the uh, uh, such crucial arteries of that supply chain go down under their watch is bad, which is the reason why I think that they are making this this decision. And, you know, the the union heads are probably not all that upset about it either because they can blame the Democrats, the, the, the Democrats are going to be taking one for the team for them. The, the, the union heads can say, hey, look, we had a deal. We brought it to you guys. You voted it down. We brought it back. We can't help it if the Democrats in Congress are going to make us go to work. Yeah, which is a really weird thing for the Democrats to do. Like maybe this is why I always say that right after an election is the most dangerous time yeah. for governing because they are as far as they can possibly be from an election. By the time we vote again in 2024, are we even going to remember that this happened? So there's probably some of that, but it is weird for the members of the Democratic Party to be like, yeah, we'll take all the heat on this for you. Like, uh, But I mean, obviously there is there is some pushback. You know, we have heard uh, since this broke yesterday that Bernie Sanders said that he would not vote for a, a strike breaking thing unless the Congress also amended their deal to add paid sick leave. Kirsten Gillibrand has said yeah. a similar thing, but uh, I'm not sure without knowing the exact, um, the exact, uh, 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 the exact margin that they need, who knows exactly how, how, how many teeth that's going to have. Yeah. The pushback is definitely happening. We also have to be mindful of the Senate calendar 
because just because this passes the house doesn't mean that there's a ton of time to even do anything in the Senate. Yeah. The Senate's already quite busy. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think right now it's, it's in the news cycle. I think this is a way to pressure the negotiators. Um, we'll see if anything actually happens, but yeah, it's going to be a very busy lame duck. <laughs> so what else, is, what sure. else is on the calendar? Obviously, we've got a lot going on. On uh, Those are the two big stories that we covered here today. Uh, uh, what else needs to happen or do you suspect will happen? Actually, uh, one thing that is definitely, it looks like uh, by the time that people listen to this, it may well have already passed, is the, the Defense of Marriage Act uh, uh, codifying mm-hmm. gay marriage, which is something that you know, I, I, I'm almost kind of surprised is uh, as quiet of a story. I've heard a lot more about Donald Trump's dining companions than I have about, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the law of the land being changed for something that was so controversial, not but 15 years ago. Well, I think you'll hear about it more when it actually is done. I think a lot of times we've heard about, oh, it passed one part of Congress and then it dies. I mean, I think that it's pretty important to wait until something's done to call it. So right now the bill is moving through the Senate, but it hasn't even passed the Senate yet. And then it still has to go to the House. So I don't think we're at the point where it's time to talk about it and celebrate. I think we really have to, especially when it comes to the Democratic Party, not give them credit for anything they haven't actually done yet. And that's where we are with the, well, but, the but marriage I, I, bill. But I, so. I don't mean credit or blame. I do mean discussion or coverage. I mean, for all the times. And, and, yeah, and granted, that. this is a weird time in the calendar. People are on vacation uh, up to and including journalists and, and, and people. Nobody's trying their hardest after Thanksgiving. Uh, but. For the love of God, for how many episodes I had to dissect the will they, won't they, did Joe Manchin uh, fart in the same elevator as Bernie Sanders of the Build Back Better stuff. <laughs> like, I, I do feel like this this could have been, I don't know, just a few more headlines just to know the ins and outs of, of, of what the conversations were, because this was something that got close to passing before the midterms. The brakes got hit on it because it got too close to the elections. And now it looks like it is going to pass, at least according to all the headcounts uh, uh, that I that I trust in, in reading the Washington press. Well, I mean, I just know with my own feelings about it, they're doing this because they didn't do it for abortion. And so we've yes. suffered the consequences by allowing it to stay a Supreme Court decision instead of actual law. So they're. They're just taking something that may or may not be in danger. At this point, it doesn't look like it's really in danger and just codifying it. It's not all that exciting, especially because most people are going like, how about you do that for abortion? Well, but yeah, <laughs> that's the I, thing I, that we I, lost and women are dying. So it's, but, but it's I, hard I to celebrate or even bother talking about it. I, the, the, that's the thing, though, is I shredded them so bad after the, 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 the Dobbs thing. And, and I, and I, I pointed at Obama having the supermajority and saying that Roe was not his number one priority. And, and all these places down the road where there was either a moment for the Democrats to fully codify Roe versus Wade or, or there to be a moment of, uh, of, of common ground. Uh, uh, although it seems so far apart when, when we focus on, on the polls that yell the most, but I, I can't be mad at them for this. This is what what people wanted with no. with, with with bro. I don't know, but uh, uh, all right. So I can't get mad at them for that, but I can't also get excited about it because they didn't run on it, which I think is kind of gross. Like do it before <laughs> the election and run on it if it's something you're proud of. But instead, they kick it till after the election. That that just feels like I don't know. It just felt if you want something to celebrate, like run on it. And they didn't do that. And again, the one that 
we're really worried. Like, I'm glad they're learning their lessons when it comes to gay marriage. So we don't lose that in the Supreme Court. But women are dying. So it's like, learn the lesson, do the other thing. But the really important one hasn't been done. So I just, it's really hard to get the emotion, even a happy one, when A, it's not done. And B, it's it's kind of the, like, the real issue is the other one. <laughs> like, I don't oh, know. They're not, I'm just, they're not ever fixing that of, in the Senate. If, if they just won a mi- an unlikely midterms on, on Roe is on the ballot, then Roe's staying on the ballot until we're dead. I know. That's what's scary. Or until there is a big pile of bodies that you know rack up no that's, that's even more reason to go to possible. the polls to pokemon go to the polls uh all right is, is, is there God. anything <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> uh is there any other uh, uh, uh thing that that will um <laughs> that will that will be popping up here in this truncated final few days of the congress before everybody leaves for christmas uh, nothing big, nothing too exciting. I know that there's a package moving forward right now that names a bunch of post offices after members of Congress. So they're, they're getting that done. Um, but <laughs> Is yeah, this like signing each other's yearbooks? Like at, at the end, you know, they, they're just like, uh, oh, like get well, always be true to you. Uh, here's a post office uh, named after you. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Jim Imhoff is retiring from the Senate. And so they're putting his name on the National Defense Authorization Act. And then, you know, the other ones get post offices and yeah, they're all just patting themselves on their backs and yeah, honoring each other. It's kind of gross. On the most recent (laughs) edition of your podcast, The Congressional Dish, you took a look at what the uh, incoming Republican Congress would be. Uh, Give us give us a top line there as to what you expect from the incoming Republican majority. Uh, and I guess we can start here, whether or not it will be headed by Kevin McCarthy. Well, I mean, I think it will for the simple fact that there's no other name even being floated. Like there's a bunch of tea party Republicans that are like, we don't like McCarthy, but they don't have another suggestion. So I do and think at Andy the end Biggs, of the day, Andy Biggs is the person who has announced, but he he lost the internal vote by 200. So I don't if, 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 yeah, if Andy Biggs is a silly person. Yeah, if, 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 <laughs> He's not going to be the speaker that yeah, if Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the votes, then Andy Biggs very much doesn't have the votes in all caps. <laughs> Yeah, I think what they're going to try to do is just show Kevin McCarthy that they're going to be difficult for him and they want to get some rule changes that limit Kevin McCarthy's power as speaker. So we'll see what happens there. But I do think Kevin McCarthy will be the speaker of the House. And I'm quite nervous about the next two years in the House of Representatives because the people that I kind of dismissed as the crazies 10 years ago are the people that are being promoted to leadership now. So while the country might be moderating and kind of moving away from the QAnon, like, I think we're kind of sick of Trump. Like, I do get that vibe that we're kind of done with the nutso stuff. Stuff like this lags in Congress. And I think I will be surprised if we don't have a government shutdown in the next two years, because these are people that back when Obama was president and the Republicans had some control in Congress they use this strategy that we've already discussed today of attaching stuff to must sign pieces of legislation because you can't get anything into law past Biden's veto pen, but you can attach things to these giant packages. And so using that brinksmanship, it worked when President Obama was president. Kevin McCarthy was, I believe he was like number three in the leadership at the time. So he learned that lesson. 
And I'm expecting quite a bit of brinksmanship from the House Republicans. And um, yeah, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Everybody <laughs> I'm, shut I'm down. About it. I feel like they're not as as rare as as I remember them as a as as, as a child. I remember it being cataclysmic when it happened under Clinton. Uh, and obviously yeah. it gave Bill uh, of free time enough to get himself impeached. But uh, uh, th- th- it seems like they happen once every every few years now. It's like it's like the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. Ever since the Tea Party wave of 2010, we've had some people that are in my experience. What I've noticed is that they are just against the government. They want to privatize everything. They say government is the problem. And therefore, I've actually heard them say stuff like, who cares if the government is shut down? We need it to be smaller anyway. So if you have people in government with that attitude and you promote them to leadership, um, they're not too worried about shutting down the government. They don't believe the government is all that important. And unfortunately, you know, back in 2013, we had a three week government shutdown. And I in my last episode, I looked back to see how many people who are kind of Republican leaders right now were involved in that, were in the House and how they voted. And looking at all of the committee, you know, the top Republicans on their committees, there were 31 of them who were in that Congress and 12 of them voted to keep the government shut. So that's about 40% of the current Republican leadership was there 10 years ago and didn't want that shutdown to end, which at the time the Republicans were getting hammered in the press. They got nothing that they wanted. It was an absolute disaster for them. And 40% of the current Republican leadership wanted to keep that going. So, and, and at the time, these were no nothing Republicans. Like you didn't know their names. They weren't committee chairmen. They were not important. Now they're very important and they've shown that they support that kind of brinksmanship. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time in the house. And for us content creators, we're going to have plenty to talk about. <laughs> That's what I like to hear, Jen Briney. Uh, uh, yep. uh, thank you very much for coming on. Congressional Dish, of course, is the podcast that everybody needs to listen to if they have not already. Uh, and, and that is your most recent episode that is previewing the incoming Republican Congress, right? Yeah, they um, put out a commitment to America, which was actually quite detailed when you dug into it um, on their website. It was probably like I probably read a total of like 50 pages of what they wanted to do. And so I summarized where there's opportunity for compromise, where they're crazy, (laughs) where, you know, where they've mellowed. So, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And I feel like I am prepared to know for you know, I'm prepared for the 118th Congress. I know kind of what to look out for when it comes to them. Fantastic. And of course, we can also hear you on We're Not Wrong, which uh, I would preview what's going to be on it, but I haven't done the prep sheet yet. So uh, it'll well, everybody then. will find out at the same time. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Jen. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. And now, a bonus clip. This is Ron DeSantis. We, we, uh, we're keeping an eye. Whenever Ron DeSantis starts talking about national stuff, starts talking about international stuff, anything that is outside of his purview... In the state of Florida, we're keeping an eye. As we know, that guy does not do things accidentally. He's not an off-the-cuff kind of guy. He is a prepared remarks kind of guy. 
We're, 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 we're seeing what kind of national or international candidate he wants to fashion himself. This is Ron DeSantis on the fight between Twitter and Apple. I'll explain context to this after the clip. Very concerning. And then when you also hear reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store because Elon Musk is actually opening it up for free speech and is restoring a lot of accounts that were uh, unfairly and illegitimately suspended for putting out accurate information about COVID. That's like one of the main things that's being reinstated. So many things these experts were wrong at and you had people on Twitter that were calling that out and Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And, and, and Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula, and so he's uh, providing free speech. And so if Apple responds to that uh, by nuking them from, from the App Store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake, and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from, from the United States Congress. And so uh, don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. Okay, if you're unfamiliar with this particular situation, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. And for my money, not a lot has changed with Twitter. (laughs) Uh, uh, There are some advertisers that have pulled their spends uh, uh, for now. But when I say that nothing much has changed, I mean, Twitter is also constantly talking about how Twitter is dying and how Twitter sucks. So, so that has continued to happen. There's just a slightly new refrain because there is a new boss in town. However, Elon did make waves by saying that he has received messaging from Apple that has possibly threatened that they would remove Twitter from the Apple App Store. This would be kind of a death sentence for that particular app. Uh, Obviously, mobile usage of Twitter is gigantic. People who are new to the platform are finding it uh, uh, predominantly on app stores, on, on mobile phones, and Apple has such a gigantic market share of that space. Now, I saw my boy, Steve Kovac, on CNBC talking about this, saying, comparing it to Apple's fight with Epic Games. They're the people that make the Fortnite uh, game. And, and I really wouldn't, I don't personally see it as a, a comparison. What happened with Epic games and the app store was Epic very deliberately wanted to go to court to challenge Apple's edict that 30% of all in-app purchases go to the house, go to Apple. So they broke their terms of service deliberately so they could set up a legal conflict that is currently still ongoing. What I would compare the Elon Musk and Apple situation to is what happened with Parler. Parler, you'll remember, after the January 6th insurrection was delisted from all major app stores, including Apple's. And the reason why was because Apple said that there was insufficient moderation. If Apple finds 
that the new look Twitter, which did just fire a bunch of people, has insufficient moderation, then I would say that this is closer to the parlor thing than it is the Epic Games thing. Let's get back to politics. Ron DeSantis weighing in on this is something that shows I will bring the Florida style of fight the enemies with the tools we have to Washington, D.C. It's taking away Disney's Reedy Creek exemption. If they're going to campaign against the the uh, uh, parental rights bill slash don't say gay bill, right? He He wants to use everything in his toolbox to hit back against his enemies. This is a key, key, key difference between him and Donald Trump. Because should they find themselves on a debate stage, what Ron DeSantis, I assume, will do is say, here are all the situations that you faced, Donald, when you had the power of the presidency, and here's how little you did. Here's what I had with Florida. Here's what I would do if I were president. Him saying that Twitter being delisted should be a congressional issue is him saying with the power of the presidency, that is what I would set my agenda with. We keep an eye on Captain Ron. If you would like to thank Jen Briney for coming on this show, you can head on over to letter P letter X number three guest dot com. If you want to send us an email, it is the young American at gmail.com. Going to do a mailbag on Friday's episode. News is kind of slowing down here (laughs) for the holidays. So we might do a few mailbags before the end of the year. If you would like to hit me up on Twitter or hit the show up on Twitter, it is PX3 Tweets. Find me live on the internet, px3live.com. And by the way, we will be doing another election recap uh, live watch for the Georgia runoffs next Tuesday evening. That will be at letter P, letter X, number three, live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. Of course, if you would like to support the show, you can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury with a one-time donation. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. You can send whatever you would like to me in the mail. P.O. Box. 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is post office box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Now, there's only one place you can get our bonus content, and that is takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show, like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Dustin, Jason, Andres, Matt, Craig Potts, MC Radio, Unsafety, B-Levels, Katie, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop. DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris, Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Diana's turn two, Miranda, Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. 
Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike Who Loves Frank Got Abducted, Utah Jimmy Montana, The Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. We also... And C. Garcia. On our Friday edition of the program, we will be joined again by uh, another one of my co-collaborators, Brian Brushwood. About a year ago, we had him on to talk about the realities of the supply chain. And it's something that has continued to plague small businesses around the world. He's moving again into another big holiday buying season. We're going to check back in with him, see how his business has continued and, you know, get another bird's eye view, not a bird's eye view, a, 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 a on the ground, dirt under the fingernails experience of uh, what it means to run a small business in the U.S. of A. when you are relying on China, amongst other things, including the mail system. Anyway. That'll be it for us today. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.